0: Morning. Morning. morning, morning. All right, let's pray and get moving. Lord, thank you for this Lord's day, and thank you for this opportunity to learn about the nature of worship and how it begins. That you call us, design uh, from your holy hill, and um, pray that as we come to the worship service after the catechism class this morning, that we do so with a, a deep and fresh and joyful understanding of what is happening in the divine drama that happens when we come to meet with you because you've come to meet with us on the Lord's Day. Uh, Aid us this morning hour that we may glorify you through knowing more about how to worship you. And um, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're all pretty familiar with the idea of that certain types of institutions or people with authority can call us for a particular task. We can be summoned, uh, to school and a bell goes and then the school's day commences, or we we must arrive to work as our employers summon us to be there at a particular time and so on. Well, it's, it's not that much different with uh, the Lord in that He, as we see in Scripture, gives a call to His people to come and worship Him. And we're going to look at the authority that God has to do so, and the purposes of God doing so when He, when he summons us to worship Him. As a an overall uh, first uh, thing to think about, God calls us in worship to the most important act of the Christian life. This is to offer worship to Him. And now, I think Antonio touched on it in the last two weeks, but worship is often thought of um, in our day as all of life and everything is, is worship. Now, that's obviously true in a general sense that we are to glorify God in everything that we do. But there's a narrow, specific sense, which is the most common sense in Scripture, that is that the people of God assemble to worship God in, in, the, in, in a service, essentially. And this Lord's Day, when he calls us to worship him, he meets with us despite our sinfulness which is an amazing thing it is a covenantal summons and we're going to talk about what that means but it's a covenantal summons to come and meet with him and that's a that's a great thing because it proves to us that if god summons us to meet with with him that since he can't have people in his presence who are unholy that means that by him calling you to meet with him here, it's confirmation to you that he has made you pure and holy through the work of his son that's applied to you by the power of his Holy Spirit. So, the very fact that God calls you here as, as, as a people should be an encouragement to you of forgiveness of sins. We're able to meet with him here because of our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. As the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament, is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Any sinner in his sight would perish. And that's why one of our professors from seminary, when asked to define the nature of hell, he said, hell is the presence of God without a mediator. And that's important to think about. Because if you didn't have a mediator as a sinner to be in God's presence would be the most terrifying thing. Because you experience of his attributes, his justice, his um, holiness, um, his wrath. But because of a mediator, all of that is dealt with so that God now meets with you as a father, as as a king. Uh, as someone who guarantees you that you are part of his kingdom forever. So with that as a bit of a preamble, essentially in worship, God's voice calls us to meet with him on his holy mountain. And we see in the Psalms the language of God's habitation being in the, on his holy hill, and which gets referred to as Zion. And God self-discloses himself to us, In a way that enables us to worship Him. And also, He promises to bless us. Uh, So, yes, He calls us to worship Him. But He also calls us that He may bless us through that covenant worship. Uh, The Westminster Shorter Shorter Catechism tells us, as we looked at in the very first week, that uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And in the worship service, that's no less true. We glorify God and enjoy being in his presence with this covenant fellowship. So, beginning to think about how scriptures issue this call to worship, when you read these calls to worship in various parts of scripture, you'll normally see there's a, a summons uh, that sing to the Lord a new song, or praise the Lord, ye heavens, and praise the Lord, his people. It often annexes a, to that a a reason for that it talks about his attributes because you will often see following those lines so praise the lord in his uh, in his throne room or whatever and it'll say for the lord is a great god greatly to be praised he made the heavens he stretched out the earth you know those kinds of things just presenting god's attributes is a summons to worship him in a sense yeah uh, Jonathan Cruz, in that book there, he notices um, in Psalm 95, uh, 6, it says that, uh, that we kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And what other response is there when considering God's attributes, that we should do anything else other than to kneel before Him, our Lord and Maker? Well, actually, a lot of people do not respond that way to God's attributes. Romans 1 tells us that what can be known about God is made plain to them, and yet they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So it's namely His eternal power, His attributes, and, and so on. You can see that in creation, and yet the unbeliever spits instead of taking a, a knee. So in God's, and this is an important division to make in terms of uh, call, the call to worship, there are two kinds of call to worship. One call to worship is a call from general revelation. Just what God has made summons His creatures to worship Him. But they don't and they can't. Their, their sinfulness and their hatred of God makes it impossible for them to worship God. But it's right for God to demand that they do because He made all, everything that He made. So anything that's God's creation owes Him worship, which is why you get a personification, or yeah, in the in the Psalms, like, talking about the 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 moon and the stars uh, praising God. You know, they 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 reflect His glory in a sense by them being made. Now, how much more creatures who are made in His image owe Him worship, and yet they do not. But then we get another call to worship, and that's the call to worship that comes from what we call special revelation. So in contrast to general revelation, that's something that everybody can see and can understand. But special revelation is God actually tells us both why we should worship, how we should worship, and how it can be possible for us to worship in the first place. The scriptures tell us that we actually in and of ourselves as sinners can't offer god pleasing worship but instead he has made a way for us to worship him and it's impossible apart from christ but uh, through the work of the mediator the lord jesus and by the power of the holy spirit he having made us new people and clothed us with the righteousness of his son When you come into church on the Lord's Day to worship the Lord, it is acceptable and pleasing to Him. Because you have been cleansed, washed clean by Christ's blood. And you stand there in the very merit of His Son, the Lord Jesus. So everything that should come to God's obedient people comes to us because Christ has given us His obedience. And will deal with that in more detail when we come to the benediction at the end of, of the series. But we need to think of these almost as uh, bookends in, in worship, the call to worship and the benediction, God's first and last word in, in, his, in the summons for his people and his dismissing them in blessing. Okay, so the idea that That this call comes to us as the first thing that happens in worship is really important. Because worship is not our idea. It's not under our initiative. It's God's gracious initiative that he calls his people. He's the king. He's the lord of the covenant and summons us to worship him. Uh, this has just been a, a, a broad overview, and we're going to look at a breakdown across Scripture of how this idea of worship has, has developed in the Scriptures. But what we need to start with is a reminder of something we've mentioned the last couple of weeks, is, that, is the covenantal nature of worship, that we worship in the context of the covenants that God has made with us. And it's been that way all the way through what the Scriptures tell us about human history. So, worship does not exist outside of a covenant, because there is no people without the covenant. And our relationship with God, that constitutes us as His people, is on the basis of a covenant. Now, that may make some people think, okay, well, since we're in the New Covenant, then does, does the worship service first occur in the New Testament? Well, some may say yes. Some may say no. The worship service occurs first in the old covenant. In the old covenant with the um, tabernacle. And others may say, well, what about Adam and Eve in the garden? And what about Adam when he was created? Well, those are good questions. We're going to we're going to look at um, all of these. Uh, Just one last thought before we dive into this uh, biblical history of worship. So the word that we use for what's going on in the worship service is liturgy. And most of you will have heard that term. That comes from the Greek word liturgia, and that is a public service or duty that is undertaken uh, in service to the state by a citizen. So, uh, liturgy, the um, liturgics is the study of then the citizens' duties in relation to the state. The way that's been deployed in the church is to talk about the official public service of the church towards their king. And this orderliness of a king and his people in service to him definitely doesn't begin with the New Testament. Because the idea of service in, from by God's people goes back to the uh, temple, back to the tabernacle, and then even to the garden, Adam. So we're going to look at that. So there's, before the New Testament, there are three, you can think of them contours in, in biblical theology about worship or you can think of them as three mountains Eden Sinai and lastly Zion now uh, in the new covenant zion is, is used the church comes to be called a, a zion kind of, the lord lifts our hearts to his presence there and so this essentially is a transformed taste of the, the heavenly uh, mount zion of the new jerusalem but these exist, these three mounts exist in the Old Testament. So, let's begin. The worship in Eden. I think by now, most of you are familiar with the idea that when God created Adam, he was created in what we call a covenant of works. That God required a specific task of Adam by virtue of him being created by God. And that if he did what God had asked in his task, and fulfilled what we call a probation. He, he was created able to sin and able to not sin. If he had obeyed God, he would have earned, he would have been what we call a successful probationer. He would have earned merit for God's favor and blessing. And as we talked about in the sermon from First Corinthians a couple of weeks ago, he would have been glorified. Uh, we know that he didn't, but even before the sin in the garden, God said to him, God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the way to think about this is that Adam was told you, you, um, you must not eat this tree in order that you can eat from this tree and enjoy fellowship and communion with me. So the point was, God summoned him to obedience and Adam was supposed to respond in faith and obedience and then they would have enjoyed this fellowship meal in the context of the covenant of works. Uh, Ezekiel 28 calls the garden Mount Eden. And we can see why this makes sense because the, if we think of how it was designed, the cherubim uh, form a, a kind of veil of a of a temple for the courtyard, which is why the cherubim was signified in the veil in the tabernacle. Actually, having a depiction in the next phase of what God is doing in history. And then the same idea in the, in the temple. And we see it on Sinai that, as Antonio said last week, no one can cross that border except for the people that God had invited. All the people had to stay away. If even a beast touches the hill, zap, they died. Well, this idea is present right in the, in the garden. It is a kind of temple. Um, and if... It's meant to be an earthly, visible representation of heaven. And if Adam had offered the obedience that he should have, he would have entered into eternal rest. But this enterprise failed, and Adam sinned. So now the paradigm shifts. There was call to worship, obedience, and then fellowship. But now something has to change because Adam can no longer offer obedience, and so new elements get introduced into what constitutes the worship service that allows people to somewhat draw near to God as He draws near to them. So, in the second phase, the next mount is Sinai, and God summons people there. So they gather. If uh, they gather at Mount Sinai, God. Calls him uh, by his word. There's cleansing through sacrifice. Uh, There's mediated access to God, meaning there's somebody God chooses as a representative who can draw near to him on behalf of the people and uh, give his word. He communicates with this appointed prophet slash priest. There's sacrifice, uh, cleansing, and then finally a fellowship meal with God. So, what do you see? You still see the same basics of that pattern a call to worship, uh, some kind of um, obedience of a mediator, and then a fellowship meal, God uh, being with his people. So, Exodus 24, God says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, call to worship. You and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come up near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come with him. So you can see the barrier that sin has put between God and his people, and now a mediator comes on on their behalf. What is extraordinary for us is that that with Christ as our mediator, God doesn't say, you guys sit out there and Christ comes here to meet with God as our mediator, but because he has actually performed his cleansing work on you, his people, you're able to draw near to the holy hill. You do not worship from afar. It is not the, only the elders that come to church for you. It is you who come to church because the mediator was successful in his work. And so now you can be here in God's holy presence, his holy habitation. Then there's one more mount, Mount Zion. And uh, we see that in 2 uh, Chronicles 5-7. Now, this is where Solomon gathers Israel for what? The dedication of the temple. And again, we have gathering, cleansing, mediated access through a priest. And then, with this praise, singing, and music... And God's response to the obedience he required is what? What happens in the temple? God's glory comes and fills the temple. And God inhabits this place among his people. And there's a fire and glory from heaven, praise, cleansing, uh, purification, and then a meal of covenant fellowship once again. Now, we see, because of sin, that these new essential elements are added uh, through the process. But the, the, the paradigm from Eden remains the same. Call to worship, a response in faith, and fellowship, signified through a meal. And that is what we are to understand as what is happening here. That God has summoned us, that we respond in faith. And he fellowships with us, he sups with us. Now, the, the idea of a, of a meal I mean we understand that you share meals with close friends and family, and that 's a special time of bonding and fellowship, of course. but in the ancient Near East, meals very strongly signify that they are really only undertaken uh, as between those who are of of kin. It's a kinship meal. Those who are knitted together in family. And so for God to meet with us and to fellowship with us is proof that you are part of his family. That you belong to him and he belongs to you. What a joyful comfort that is each each week. And the last... um, two little points which are connected with the call to worship. After the call to worship, we have an invocation, we call it prayer of invocation, and then God's greeting, right? You'll notice we do that each week in our liturgy. Well, the invocation is connected to this call to worship because it's, it's the response. Antonio talked about the dialogical principle that God speaks and we respond. Well, in the invocation, God has summoned us to worship and the call to worship. So in the invocation, we acknowledge his summons, that he has called us here, and then we respond and we call upon his name. Uh, that is an extraordinary, that is, an, um, that is really a miraculous thing, that we can call upon the name of the Lord. Think back to Genesis 4, in verse 26, it says, at that time, people began, began to call upon the name." Of the Lord. To call upon his name means he has revealed himself and who he is and what he is like that we may call upon him as our king, as our suzerain, as the one who uh, we owe allegiance to but has also sworn to protect us and sworn to meet with us and sworn to bless us. So we actually have, in terms of the covenant, we have a right to call on God to fulfill his promises to us and doing that is actually the act of faith it's it's believing that god is going to do what he said and he is pleased for you to call upon his name and say lord you have promised to meet with us lord you have promised to bless us lord you've promised to be with us by your spirit lord you've promised to sanctify us all of these things, it is good to call upon the Lord. He's pleased to have his name upon our lips to be called. These are our covenant rights. And his covenant rights are for us to worship him. He is our creator, he is our redeemer, he is our savior, uh, he is our king. So Psalm 124 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And then God has called us, we've responded, calling upon his name, and so he greets us. And he responds in the dialogical principle, and he certifies to you that he accepts that his favor is upon you. And we get these from scriptures, if you're wondering what the scriptural warrant is, scriptures like the beginning of the epistles, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this is... Exactly what we expect from the Old Testament promises, like Joel chapter 3, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what he certifies to you when he proclaims his blessings to you. Uh, When Antonio does the benediction, uh, you know, sometimes ministers will raise their hands as representatives of God to announce that the Lord's blessing is upon you. Uh, He is certifying to you that you are saved, and he is blessing you. And this really is great news, because although each week we violate the covenant, when we are faithless, God is faithful. And so his greeting to you is amazing, because it's a reminder that he keeps his promises, uh, even when we do not. And so this is why Cruz quotes uh, Horton. Um, Horton, in his, in his book, in considering this about the worship service, he says, uh, he quotes uh, Zechariah 13, verse 9, they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Isn't that wonderful. So think of it this way each Lord's day, God's voice thunders forth from Zion in heaven and summons you here. As Antonio read last week, Hebrews 12 uh, says that in, um, you have come to Mount Zion, not to the trembling coal-firing engine of Sinai, which would be our death, but to Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the first, fourth, firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And all of this is certified to you when God calls you here today and every day until he returns. Amen. Amen. Let's just pray. Uh, What more can we say, Lord, then uh, we bless your name and uh, praise you, and we call upon your name. Uh, that you are our God and we are your people. So uh, we praise you as our one true and living God. And we do this through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.